My good morning to everyone who is here and everyone who is joining with us online. Um, it's such a blessing to me whenever I, I read Revelation 21, and it's particularly enjoyable when you can hear it read and just take a moment to close your eyes and even try to envision what that might be like, knowing that the best thing that your mind can come up with won't even begin to scratch the surface of what we have to look forward to. This vision given to John of this new heaven and the new earth in Jerusalem. And we've spent a decent amount of time as we've been going through Hebrews talking about this reward that we are waiting for. But this reward also comes with an incredibly intimidating warning at the end of what Tim was reading. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. That speaks clearly to us the gravity of the holiness of God. Last week as we were working in our passage, we heard that charge from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you therefore must be perfect as the Heavenly Father is perfect. And here today we hear that to fail in that perfection is to be denied entry to the promised rest. And our passage this morning carries all of that same gravity, the weight of the holiness of God. But the tone there is not one that cries, abandon hope, all ye who enter here. For those who are familiar, that comes from Dante's poem, Inferno, and it is inscribed over the gates of hell. But as we read it, we look at it and go, how can we have hope if that is what we are, what is going to be expected of us? But the tone in our passage this morning is, not one of hopelessness, but of very concerned exhortation. There's almost a pleading to what our author is saying here. Remember our passage from last week, it spoke of the discipline of God, how these believers in our author's audience had been subject to God's discipline, discipline for our good that we may share His holiness. So with that in mind, turn to Hebrews chapter 12, and we're going to be starting in verse 12. Remember that God has disciplined you for your good, that we may share his holiness. That discipline is sometimes painful, but the results ultimately are more than worth it. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 12. Therefore... Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy 
like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. For he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. This is God's word, and this is our passage this morning. Hopefully you see what I mean when I say that there's almost a pleading tone to what our author has to say here this morning. God has disciplined you as sons so that you may be made holy, and so you must be holy. In light of what the Lord has done, this is what you have to do. One of the things I have absolutely loved in the book of Hebrews is that it so clearly balances the sovereign and unassailable actions of the Most High God with the continued importance of human agency, what we do. God has done all things. He has sovereignly orchestrated the flowing music of the universe, every movement, every instrument, every note, totally under his perfect direction. None outside of his control. And yet, each instrument still necessary and accountable for their performance before God. In verses 1 to 3 in Hebrews 12, we have this commandment. Lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Then in verses 4 to 11, we see how God's discipline brings this about in the lives of his children. And then today we get some of the nitty-gritty, the detailed instructions. We are to lay aside every sin and to do so with the assistance of the Lord's discipline, but what, what does that look like? And I see when I looked at this passage, I saw it split into two sections and each of those sections kind of being further split into two sections. And the first runs from verses 12 to 14, and then the second from 15 to 17. And in the first section, we have a call for personal responsibility. I picture the author looking in the eye of each in his audience and going, therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Our author is kind of continuing this athletic metaphor that he had been working with in verses 1 to 3. These believers must now steal themselves. They have started the race well. They have believed the truth. They have placed their faith in God, but now they're initial energy might be beginning to flag. One of the keys in any athletic competition is form. It doesn't really matter which discipline you look at, whether it's martial arts or team sports or running. The athlete who has trained well comes out in absolute peak form. Each movement is precise and measured. No movement is wasted and nothing is out of place. But as they tire, the athletes start to get sloppy. 
The boxer, his guard kind of starts to drop, exposing his head. The hockey player, he, he starts to make passes that get picked off. The runner's hands start to drop and they stop pumping perfectly in time with their legs and their legs start to wobble. And our author understands that this is a crucial phase. The great athletes are often separated from the good ones not just by sheer weight of skill, but often also this ability to push through and maintain their, their form. Another great example I saw this week, as I've been kind of thinking about and preparing for hunting season, I've been looking at new knives to do my butchering with, and the difference between a cheap knife and an expensive knife is not how sharp the knife is going to be out of the box. Any knife, when you pull it fresh out of its box for the first time, will cut anything. It will be razor sharp. But the difference will be the cheap knife will dull extremely quickly and wear out and have no, no edge left. But the expensive knife will maintain this edge that will last through all of your, your project. But it maintains that form that it has been given. These believers are in danger of flagging in their wholehearted, single-minded pursuit of Christ. All of us understand if we have placed our faith in God, there's this immense boost of energy when you place your faith in God that you are just excited. You are on fire and everything is all about Jesus. And you push through and you're excited about your faith and everything, you see God's hand on everything and you're ready to go. And then as normal life wears on, whatever the instances were that surrounded your conversion, all of a sudden the energy starts to wear off and you can't just hold on to that anymore. But we're told throughout Hebrews that this pursuit, this continued pursuit is defining of true faith. The ability to persevere unto the very end holding fast to the confession of our faith and maintaining this form that we have been taught through God's Word. There's a couple quotes in this section. And the first one comes from Isaiah 35.3. If we expand it out to include verse 4 in Isaiah, it says, Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Isaiah is calling upon Israel to behold their God, to strengthen one another with the knowledge of him who will save them. And the question is, how are we, how was our audience supposed to lift their drooping hands and strengthen their weak knees both then and now, we must turn our eyes towards Jesus. We must maintain our focus upon our Savior, for He is the only one that can continue and give us the energy to continue to save us. A second loose quote is from Proverbs 4. 
verses 25 to 27 say, let your eyes look directly forward and let your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet and then all your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or the left. Turn your foot away from evil. I've really enjoyed, some of you will have seen on my social medias that I'm starting to read a simplified version of John Bunyan's beautiful Pilgrim's Progress. It's been a highlight for my kids in our family worship time. And in his journey to the celestial city, the main character, Christian, must take the straight path to the city of the king. But there are a myriad of some seemingly well-intentioned and some obviously not so, but these advisors that try to lead him astray from the path. The first of these is Mr. Worldly Wise Man, who convinces Christian to turn aside from the path to the village of morality and the ever-present Mr. Legality in order to get out from under his burden of sin. On his way there, he is almost dashed to pieces only to be saved by one Mr. Evangelist who warns him, you cannot be justified by the works of the law because it isn't how one follows the law or the good things they do that rids them of their burden. One of the great lessons that any of us who've ever read Pilgrim's Progress can see woven throughout is that there can be no deviance from the one path. There are no shortcuts. There are no easy ways. And sometimes the one path will take us straight up the hills of the hardest difficulty. There is but one way to the celestial city of the eternal loving king. And Hebrews tells us this one way is to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And to turn in any other direction is to court destruction. We lift our drooping hands. We strengthen our weak knees. We make straight paths for our feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. As I was reading that, I was struck by the poignant picture of the Christian life. We don't determine to follow Christ and immediately find all our ills, injuries, and difficulties rectified. We still face all manner of struggles. The scars that we carry with us from our life before Christ and the scars that we will incur, incur going forward from there, they still persist. And we may limp or even crawl down the path of salvation. But as we progress, as we submit to the sanctifying discipline of God, oftentimes we will gradually find some of our injuries healing. And some of our injuries may never fully heal until we enter that holy city that we have heard about already this morning. And so we turn our eyes towards Jesus. And sometimes we have to dust ourselves off, pull ourselves back up. We have to grit our teeth and we fix our eyes upon the author and perfecter of our faith and we pursue him. 
turning neither to the left or the right. And according to verse 14 of our passage, we strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That verse stands directly opposed to this worldly idea that swing to the other end of the pendulum that Christian faced in the world of morality and legality in Pilgrim's Progress just as we cannot save ourselves by simply following the right things, we also cannot be saved without personal holiness. And I want to clarify here, this is not a matter of salvation by works. We are not saved by our holiness. We can do nothing to earn God's favor. How well we follow the rules Ultimately, we do have to follow the rules, but we will not do so perfectly and we will not achieve the perfection that is going to be required of us. We cannot be saved that way. But personal holiness is an absolutely necessary byproduct of our salvation if we are saved. To be a Christian and to not be growing in holiness to not be growing in our conformity to the laws and the commandments of God is to call into question our own salvation. That doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, that we're going to live totally righteous lives because we are saved. But as we grow in our faith, the scars begin to heal and the vestiges of our old life begin to fall away and the things that held so much promise to us that the world held out start to lose some of their luster and we leave those things behind for the new and better promises held out by our God. Love at the beginning of verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. We are to be striving. And I think... As I'm reading this, I'm taken to the greatest commandments that Jesus identified in Matthew 22. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. We are to strive for peace with everyone. That sounds a whole lot like loving our neighbors as ourselves. And we are to love the Lord your God with all our heart and soul and mind. As I read that one, Jesus also says in John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Pursuing peace with everyone and holiness, loving our neighbors and loving God, which means obeying his commands. We are told that these are the sum of the entire law of God. And ultimately, these are the task of all who would claim to follow him. And we are to strive after that, to pursue it. And this is an incredibly monumental task. And it would be even more so 
if we had to do it alone. But praise God, this is not the case. The second section of our passage this morning reminds us that this call to holiness is not only a private endeavor, although in some cases it is so. We do have our private battles that we fight, but it is also a corporate endeavor. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. The first subsection found in this passage is in verse 15. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. This is a huge knock against the just me and Jesus concept of the Christian faith. So many people, you talk to them about what they believe. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. Well, where do you go to church? Well, I, I don't really go to church, but I believe in Jesus. I read my Bible. Okay. In our Western culture, we're often loath to let anyone into our inner circle. We hold everyone out at arm's reach. I mean, the whole idea of a handshake as the typical Western greeting is in place to define an appropriate personal bubble. When I shake your hand, you can go, this is how close you are allowed to me. And that sets up the personal bubble. That's where people are allowed. You are allowed this far and no further. And we use all manner of spiritual, mental, and emotional techniques as methods equivalent to a handshake. You are allowed this close and no further. We make excuses. We bury and we hide our real feelings. We have our go-to. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing all right. I'm doing good. There are little platitudes that we say when we meet each other, and you really look at your life, you go, no, I'm not, I'm not doing good at all, but I don't want to have to get into that right now. We make up social rules about not act, asking those personal questions. Okay, you don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics, you don't talk about COVID, you don't talk about... We make up our list of things, the topics to avoid. We limit our number of friendships and really limit the number of people that we allow on our kind of inside track. But if that's how we act as the church with one another, how on earth can we possibly hope to fulfill this commandment? How can we corporately see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God? How can I do that with you? How can you do that with me if we can't even get close enough to tell whether or not that you've had a semi-decent week? How can our brothers and sisters do the same in our lives? You and I, we are 
to be family. We are meant to know each other and know each other well enough that we can care for and support one another with more than just kind of the base level platitudes and pray for one another in ways that are more than if we kind of so-and-so comes up on our prayer list. Well, I pray that Joe is doing good. Pray that Joe's family is healthy. We have these just kind of base level things that we can pray for one another, but we should be able to know each other well enough to know, okay, this is what I know that this person is earnestly seeking after or struggling with or any of these kind of things. And I think, honestly, part of our hesitancy to treat the church like family has to do with the second section of our verse. See to it that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many have become defiled. In some cases, and in many cases, when we talk to people who are walled up and closed off and hesitant to buy in to the whole family idea of church and let people inside, my experience, nine times out of ten, is because that person has had a bad experience. I let someone get close, and I was burned, and they let my personal info leak, or they used it against me, or whatever it might be. So I'm just going to stick with the kind of me and Jesus kind of thing. And if I have a prayer request, I'll just kind of put it out as an unspoken prayer request. God knows. But I'm not letting anyone get that close again. Sometimes these people would quickly be identified if we were being honest about it as these roots of bitterness. That root of bitterness comes from Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19, which say, Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit. One who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe, though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. These are the people who know God's word, who know his commandments, but then go on to live according to their own wills. People who would say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian. But then you look at their lives and the way they treat one another and remembering that the way that we treat one another is meant to be so loving that the world take notices, takes notice and says, why do these people love each other so well? But these are the people who are the root of bitterness. And we as the church, it is our responsibility not only to lift up and encourage the faithful, but also to confront sin and to refuse to tolerate it when someone would propagate a sinful lifestyle within the body. I've had several family members who have done battle with cancer, and the only solution to that battle with cancer is to cut the cancerous cells out because they will multiply and they will kill you. And sometimes that is the only response when you have this root of bitterness. 
Our church has chosen elders, men of biblical qualifications and upright character to bring spiritual leadership within the church. These men are called to submit to Christ as his under-shepherds. They have a two-fold job to see the sheep in this fold cared for and nourished and maintained and fed, while at the same time protecting these sheep from those who would do them harm both without and within. And although the responsibility for this care of the flock falls particularly on its shepherds, each member of this church also makes a commitment when they enter the membership of the church. They commit to care for their brothers and their sisters in this fold, to use their gifts for the glory of God and for the good of his people, for the good of his church. And that responsibility includes doing our level best to protect each other both from outsiders the, and then the wolves in sheep's clothing, the one who have made it inside and are acting as unbelievers and living lives that are unholy within the church. So not only are we to watch out for those who would lead, lead our brothers and sisters astray or bring that poisonous fruit into the congregation, we are also to see to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. And that is where the spiritual hermit finds himself totally adrift from the care of God's people. Because, okay, maybe I don't have to worry about the, the bitter fruit type people if I just wall myself off and just me and Jesus. But God's people are called to see to it that we remain holy. How can God's people help to keep us from sin if we never let them see anything more than our picture-perfect Facebook personas? We post our pictures of how great our family outing is going, but not the nuclear meltdown of the children five seconds before or after the picture was taken. But if we never show that side of our lives to our Christian brothers and sisters, our church family, if they never get to know that there is a nuclear meltdown happening in our lives because of this, that, or the other thing, how can they help us to respond in a holy and godly way? And oftentimes I've found that the people who are most frustrated and upset that the church isn't helping them that the church isn't seeing the need in their lives and responding to it. A lot of times those are the same people who you ask them how they're doing and I'm fine. Or you go to try and talk to them after the church service and they're already in the car and three blocks down the road and run away as quickly as they can. Because we are meant to care for one another. That command to be holy is a lot and completely impossible for us alone. We need Jesus. We need him to do it. 
and then we need our brothers and our sisters to help us to do it. We know that it is God who saves. It is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And yet, like we discussed last week, God uses means to save his people. And one of those means is his discipline. Sometimes that discipline manifests itself through the actions of the church and its people. And sometimes the means is just a brother or sister in the church who knows us, who we know them, they know us, and they can look at our lives and say, what's up? You haven't been to church in a month. Or if you have been to church, it's like all the joy has just been sucked out of your life. What's going on? Brothers and sisters who are able to ask those questions, who we've given permission to ask those questions, and that they've given us the same permission to ask the questions of them, the church is responsible for one another. The discipline of God is laid out throughout Scripture. 1 Corinthians 5 is a great account of the discipline of someone within the fold for their own good. Paul writes to the church in Corinth, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. A man is sleeping with his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning and have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? At first glance, that seems like you just kicked him out on his tail because you don't like what he does. But if you read on, For my part, even though I am not physically present, I am with you in spirit as one who is present with you in this way. I have already passed judgment in the name of our Lord Jesus on the one who has been doing this, So when you are assembled and I am with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. There's a whole lot of, well, you can't judge me, only God can judge me. Well, if you have claimed faith in Christ, then we can, as a church, care for one another sometimes in this way. This is the church as a body acting to see that this one would not fail to obtain the grace of God. And even though this is an incredibly serious and painful reminder for whoever this person is, on a corporate level, it is done so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. And sometimes this is done not on a whole church level. Sometimes this is done on a person-to-person level. Our brother or sister who knows us and who cares for us and who loves us calls us to account and say, you need to deal with this right now. Because if you don't, you're going to be destroyed. This passage goes on to give the example of Esau his rejection of his birthright, and ultimately his place in God's covenant displayed a heart that had utterly rejected the Lord and was totally enraptured in the desires of the flesh. 
as we read these things, I'm sure you're remembering some of the warning passages that we've looked at in Hebrews. 6.4, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. Or Hebrews 10.26, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. The truth is, though, you and I, we do not know the final destination of even one person on this earth. We can make inferences from their actions and their lives, but ultimately the judgment of those ones is out of our hands for only God knows the heart. And since we cannot know whether there is whether or not a person is hardened without hope like Esau or Pharaoh were, or hardened with hope like Saul, who became Paul. Saul would have been the perfect candidate of the one to just wash our hands up and say, he's beyond saving. But since we don't know, we need to be prepared to drag our brothers and sisters back kicking and screaming if necessary from the precipice of destruction that sometimes we can find ourselves. It wouldn't matter to me how badly you wanted to step in front of a train. If I'm standing there, I am going to use every ounce of my strength to grab you and pull you back and hold you down until I know that you are safe, regardless of whether you really, really wanted to step in front of that train. Why? Because you are my family, my spiritual family, a bond that Jesus tells us goes even deeper than the blood bond of a biological family. And if we see a brother or a sister acting in an unholy or immoral manner, a manner unbecoming of a child of the king, we have to do all that we can to see that person saved from their sin and from themselves. I'd hope that any one of you would do that for me, and I hope that you would know that I would do the same for you. I said earlier that I absolutely love how this passage balances the sovereignty of God and His control over all things and the continued importance of human agency. And I have to do everything I can to drag you back, to make sure that you are saved and acting in a way that is becoming of a child of God. But ultimately, whether or not you respond to that is up to our Lord. Only He can save you. Only He can give you a joy in the things of Him that surpasses any joy that you'd find in this world. And each one of us is responsible to 
pursue the things of God in our own hearts and in our own lives wholeheartedly, putting to death daily the sins that so easily entangle us, laying them aside and keeping our eyes fixed upon Christ, all the while knowing that it is God who wills in us to will and to work for his good pleasure. So I hope, brothers and sisters, that you leave here this morning with a better understanding of God's ordained part for you to play in your own sanctification. He saves us, He makes us holy, and He commands us to be holy. And He even commands that as far as it depends on us, we see our brothers and sisters kept holy. So turn your eyes towards Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. Then lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, and make straight paths for your feet. Steal yourselves, and then strive for peace with everyone. Steal yourselves, and then for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord, pursue it. And see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy. We know even as we say that, that we can't make anyone moral or holy. We can't make anyone obtain the grace of God. But as far as it depends on you, don't give them any excuses to say, well, they didn't even try. And do all of this in the power of God. In the power that he supplies by the working of his Holy Spirit. Knowing that he is working in you to accomplish his purposes. You can't do it. But he has promised that he does do it through his people. And ask that the worship team would come up to lead us in a closing song. And then we are going to come to our God in prayer. Our God and our Heavenly Father, we are absolutely undone before your holiness. You give us glimpses in your scriptures of how great and how holy and how perfect and how righteous you are, and we are absolutely undone. We say with the prophet, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I am undone. But God, you have commanded us to be holy, so we must be holy. God, you have also given us the holy and righteous life of Christ in exchange for our own faithless, immoral, unholy life. An exchange for which we can never repay the debt. An exchange for which we could never earn or buy by our own 
righteous actions which have become like filthy rags before your holiness. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for the times where we have not been holy. Lord, we ask that you would forgive us for times where we have not done everything we could to see our brothers and our sisters made holy. May we love each other enough to care for one another. May we love each other enough to let our brothers and sisters in to see the not-so-pretty parts of our lives that we might care for one another. And may the love that we show to one another shine out into this world to make them question what it is that motivates such love. A love based not on our fake, perfect selves, but the real, imperfect people who have committed themselves to Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you have accomplished this through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. By his perfect sinless life, by his death that he did not deserve, and by his resurrection and glorification. We thank you that our great high priest now sits at your right hand and is ministering on our behalf, interceding for us. Lord, we ask by your Holy Spirit that you would make us righteous, that you would make us holy before you. God, you are great and you are good. And we love you and will continue to love you for as many days, months, or years as you give us breath. We pray that we as Elk Point Baptist Church might bring you all honor, glory, and praise in the way that we act in our own lives and in the way that we pursue you as a congregation. Pray these things in Jesus' name.